Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Uh, One of us is looking at that money a bit gingerly because I did a marathon march yesterday, which my bubble managed to seasonally adjust into 28 miles. Uh, Kieran, which was um, a mistake, although the, we had a little uh, break at 20 miles for a couple of miniature whiskies sitting in the forest in Surrey, so that was quite nice. That sounds, uh, sounds a splendid day out. Yeah, it, it, it was, except as, as somebody pointed out, with uh, I, was, I, was, I was walking with my five-year plan, Pod Boys, and somebody said the two older, it looked like uh, me and the other older member of the chat were hobbits being rescued by elves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thank you for your donation, Kieran, it's much appreciated. Um, it's it's questions day, Kieran. And my first question to you, based on what you've just told me, is how much can your granddaughter eat? Well, we took her for her first uh, first time. We went out with her for a, a roast meal down the local pub, um, and she she absolutely demolished it at the age of fourteen months. It was it was a delight to watch, and I just wish I could eat like that. You know, the ability to throw food on the floor and not care. I'll, I'll have to wait, and I'll have to wait until I'm seventy before I can get away with that again. That's true. It's, it's it can't get better than that as a fourteen month old sitting on granddad's knee, just shoving gravy filled Yorkshire pudding into your face. Life is beautiful for some people, Kieran, isn't it? Um, it's questions day, Kieran, but there are some news stories to talk about, um, two of which are causing quite the stir, and one of which in particular I, I think we'll have to talk about in much greater detail on on Wednesday. First of all, Kieran, fans will be able to watch all the Premier League games that haven't been selected for broadcast in October on a pay-per-view basis at £14.95 pence each. Now, Kieran, as you know, I try to remain neutral as the presenter of this. I prefer to wind you up, point you in the right direction, and let which, you go. Which you do very well. Which I do very well. Um, but I'm I'm furious. I'm genuinely furious about this. Um, firstly, cl- clubs like Palace, Brighton, and Burnley are unfairly hit because we'll be on TV much less than the big clubs. And secondly, I was convinced by Steve Parrish's argument, so I, I bought a season ticket which means now I'm paying to not watch games and I'm expected to pay to watch them as well. It's not happening. I, I just, you talk about a tin ear all the time. It's, just, it, it's so infuriating. Whose initiative was this, Kieran, and who will get the money? Right. Um, I've I've done quite a bit of ferreting over this particular story in the last 36 hours. Spoken to, uh, I mean, to be fair to the Premier League, I, I did phone their press office and, and they gave me an answer. So at, at least they're talking to us, which is more than you can say for the EFL. Um, and uh, I've spoken to some journalists as well. The way the, way the story goes is as follows. Um, my understanding is on Thursday night, the the Premier League chairman were told about this meeting in advance. Yeah, i.e. They, they, they could sleep on it. Right. Uh, they turned up at the meeting on Friday, and, and they were given this. They're given the following choice: either half the matches in the Premier League, people never get to see because it's uh, they're, they're not going to be broadcast for free, right. or you pay fourteen pounds ninety five. You are not allowed to adjust the price. The price has been set by the broadcasters and not the Premier League clubs. So. Yeah, let, let's be honest. There's been a complete shitstorm about this, and, and I was I was absolutely livid. I'm, I'm I, I think it's overpriced. Um, I, I think by all accounts, uh, the vote was nineteen to one in favour, and 
I think what Premier League club chairman had done, they've said uh, quite a few of them aren't happy about it, um, but they'd rather give fans the choice of either paying for an overpriced product mm. or just saying, I'm going to listen to it on the radio. Yeah, or find a dodgy stream, which is what a lot of the fans will do. Well, uh, yeah, we, we've had this conversation before. You know, everybody's everybody's got a big Dave down the pub yeah. who can get you a dodgy fire stick. Now, we, I'm not condoning uh, people that do things of that nature, but if you get your pricing wrong, and, and, and we saw that with the music industry, you know, 25 years ago with the rise of Napster and things like that, if you get your pricing wrong and, and you you treat people with disdain, what what still could be technically illegal becomes socially acceptable. Yeah, and I, I think that there's a genuine danger that I know for fifty quid I can watch all of the Premier League games, including the ones I've already watched on Sky and BT. I choose not to do that because I do, I don't I don't feel comfortable about it. Um, I don't know where the money's going. But now I'm feeling a bit sore. And also I'm feeling, you know, have I, have I been sort of too much of a goody two-shoes? And let's face it, I am a goody two-shoes uh, for, for my own good um, and, and have made it to me look a bit of a mug. Um, so, yeah, the, the price is wrong. Given uh, the, the argument put forward by the Premier League is that there's, there's more cameras uh, at the Premier League games than there is for the EFL iFollow service. So, therefore, they're going to charge you – Fifty percent more, but but my argument is that the football match not isn't fifty percent longer in terms of time. And if I'm honest, I don't get fifty percent more enjoyment from watching my team win than a Rochdale fan does for who pays attention. Because we we all love our clubs the same. So the, I think the price has really riled people. Um, as you rightly said, it discriminates against clubs of the stature of ours, and, and to, to a certain extent. Um, if if this price has been set by the broadcasters, this is what we should do as fans. Simply don't pay for it. And they will learn that their pricing structure is wrong. It's not the same as Anthony Joshua paying, you know, against Tyson Fury, where they might, you know, I know that Sky have done pay-per-view before and it's 25 or 30 quid. But, you know, for, for that, you know, because you, you do get a bunch of mates around and, and, and it is, it's a genuine one-off experience. Um, no disrespect, West Bromwich Albion versus Burnley at 5.30 on a Monday afternoon doesn't have the same were-you-there uh, sense of, of uh, excitement or, or uniqueness. So oh, that's where I, I find it odd, Kieran, because I, this is probably generational, and obviously I can't speak for, for young people, but in, in previous seasons, uh, before COVID, if Palace were playing away at Burnley and it wasn't on TV, and I'm not the sort of person, I don't like looking for dodgy streams, as I don't like watching away games on telly anyway, I'll get very superstitious, but I'm quite happy to wait and watch the highlights on Match of the Day. I, I'm not one of those people that has to watch every single minute of every single football game, because every single minute of every single football game isn't available, and has never been for most of my life, so I kind of resent this implication that we're a captive audience who are dim enough to pay 15 quid to watch a game where we we could wait till the end of it and see the highlights pretty much on the Sky app or whatever. It's, I just think at a time when people, and they know people are struggling for money, they must know Premier League clubs what the issues are with season tickets. It's suddenly they're saying, well, as I say, you're being you're being asked to pay to not watch football games live and now you've been asked to pay to watch them live. It, it's infuriating. It, it is. Um, I, I suspect we will see this week an awful lot of Premier League clubs write to fans who are season ticket holders and say, we're on, uh, we've got one home game, we've got two home games, or we've got three home, well, however many games it is, what we are going to do is that we are going to give you a rebate of, let's say if you're on twice, I think mm. Brighton are on twice, I think Burnley are on three times, if you say if you're Burnley, we will give you a £45 rebate on the season ticket money that you've already paid, and then it's your choice. You can, yeah. you can stick it in your back pocket, or you can use that. So th- I, I, I honestly don't think that the the Premier League clubs on an individual basis are necessarily the bogeymen on this. Right. Uh, I think the, the Premier League hierarchy, along with the broadcasters who are, who are coming out of this smelling of roses, um, are, are the people who have made a poor decision. If it had been a tenor, I, I, I wouldn't be moaning. 
but mm. 15 quid it's it's not it's not the same um and again this argument oh well, you know we, we've got all of these cameras there and you've got to go and pay for that private privilege well you know i think the technical word for that is bollocks yeah and the reason why i say that is because as you rightly said it's going to be on match of the day and therefore you need the seven or the nine cameras for match of the day mm. to get uh, to get the standard of broadcast so therefore there is no extra cost being incurred by the broadcasters for this so so don't don't treat us as if we're stupid. You know, there, there is this commonly held belief that we as football fans can be, can, can have the wool pulled over our eyes. And the thing is, you know, within a football fan base these days, you've got doctors, you've got lawyers, you've got architects, you've got, you've got uh, comedy writers and authors, as such as yourself, of course. And you, um, and you, and, yeah. And, um, you know, we, we, we won't take this lying down. The Football Supporters Association are angry. We've seen some really lucid, sensible comments come out from some of the fan groups as well. Sometimes, if you make a mistake, and let's face it, both Liverpool and Spurs made mistakes with regards to the furlough. Um, if, 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 if you're man enough, if, if, you've got, if you've got a pair of cojones, and you know, hopefully smooth ones following our <laughs> sponsorship from Manscaped, um, then you'll admit that there's, there's a ways around this. You, know, you, you could, and if they want to save face, tell you what, uh, tell, tell fans, if they book up for the matches in advance, uh, we'll give you an early bird discount for nine ninety five, and see what the take-up is. Uh, you know, if, if you book forty-eight hours before the match takes place, you know, there are there are ways around this for everybody to to come out of this looking a little bit better than they are now. So, my, my anger was initially at the clubs and the Premier League. As, as I've delved more into it, I've, I've got to say I think the broadcasters here have not played this very well. Well, also they don't seem to realise, Kieran, that football fans instinctively know how much is too much. It's like I'll pay thirty quid for an away game. I paid 50 quid to get into Fulham for the first game of last season because it's the first game of the season. But otherwise, I'm not paying 50 quid for an away game. And most fans know where the limit is. In the same way that I, I get asked to do a lot of benefits, a lot of com- live comedy shows, or used to when we had a, a live comedy scene. And when people were saying, how much should we charge for tickets? And they would say, let's charge £25, £30 to get in. And I'd say, no, don't do that because comedy fans won't pay £25, £30. Anything above 15 quid. They won't want to do that because, and and it's the same with football fans and broadcasters don't seem to realise that. But uh, there are better news for some EFL uh, supporters because it, some of the fans may be able to watch live matches at EFL grounds in the near future. Yes, this this uh, this is both good news and testament to the lunacy. In, in in terms of the world in which we're living at present, um, we've been given access to um, a proposal from the EFL where clubs can allow their fans to watch matches at the grounds from the hospitality lounges with the blinds pulled down on a big screen. No, so yeah. you, you can't watch the match outdoors where your chances of catching COVID are, by all accounts, very, very remote. Yeah. But you can watch it indoors, um, presumably sat down. And I think what some clubs will be doing, yeah, they'll be offering you the three-course meal uh, in, in the hospitality lounge. Clearly, they'll be charging you far more than a tenner. But I, I have no issue with that. You know, for, for those EFL clubs who need the money, then fair play to them. Um, and, and you'll be able to do that, I think, for both home and away games as well. Now, th- this could actually be something which the, the the Premier League clubs could offer in in due course. And I think if we're operating in a COVID world, we need to start thinking creatively. Yeah. So, you know, many clubs, for example, have got fairly big car parks. Well, mm. let's have drive-in football. Mm. Yeah, can you imagine? To, you go to a match with with three or four of your mates. Uh, you, you you get some that they can they can. Deliver food to your window. You watch it on a big screen. You know, all of a sudden, it's it's a bit like being a teenager again. Yeah. So, so I, th- I think there are there is scope for the Premier League and other clubs to to start to use this. Um, you know, I, th- I think these pay per view events perhaps they could take place at a cinema. In, in which case, you know, could it be that the cinema pays a fee and, and you end up paying less than fourteen ninety five? I'm, I'm just thinking outside of the box here, but uh, I think you know, fair play to the EFL for this. Um, you know, it, it is it is a way of clubs generating money. We want all clubs to survive. Mm. See, the cinema idea is is a good one. It's imaginative, but as Steve Parrish pointed out, um, two cinemas showed the Chelsea Palace game live uh, in the cinema. Uh, one of which had four hundred people in, 
and yet 400 people are allowed to sit in the cinema watching Chelsea play Palace, but none of them are allowed into Stamford Bridge to see it. We we finished the marathon march yesterday at Sellers Park in a big hospitality suite. Now, friends and family weren't allowed in. They had to wait outside for us, but there were 120 of us in a giant room uh, having a, a socially distanced nice time with beer bo- being brought to our tables. If Palace were playing on the other side of the screen, we wouldn't have been allowed into the ground to watch them. It makes it makes no sense. Now, Kieran, two stories to talk about, one of which is massive, but both of which involve Liverpool to an extent. And the first one is that Liverpool owners are thinking of floating the club's parent company on the stock market. Why would they do that? Um well, the reason why they could do that, Kevin, is that it's, it's a way of generating um, you know, the positives are that you can raise capital. So the owners um, of Liverpool Football Club, the Fenway Sports Group, paid 300 million quid, which is now, of course, looking an absolute bargain to to uh, acquire the club about six or seven years ago. Um, what they're trying to do now is that they're going to uh, the aim is to float the club on the, I think, some form of US stock exchange at a valuation of around about eight billion. So what will happen is that uh, you know the existing shareholders could become very wealthy on the back of this. Now they don't just own a Liverpool football club; they own the Boston Red Sox as well. Um, so you know that's that's the good thing in theory. Uh, fans of Liverpool could buy shares in the club, although you know all you're doing is really getting a piece of paper. The downside of floating on a stock exchange is that you end up being you you become the puppet of of the market. Mm. Um, you know the focus will be on financial issues rather than sporting issues. Which is really again sort of linked to our next question. You know, could there be a super league and yeah. things? Um, we, we've seen in respect of Manchester United, they're spending twenty-two million pounds a year um, giving dividends to shareholders, and the banks are are taking another twenty odd million out of the club as well. Um, it could also get messy. You're trying to work out well, well, who are the owners of the clubs because they they can become you know very scattered. So there's. I can see the benefits from the club owner's point of view. Uh, in, in terms of the benefit for, you know, I, I, I work in Liverpool, as you know. Mm. Uh, I think the reaction from from my friends to date has been, we're not particularly comfortable about this. You know, we, we still see ourselves as a local club and potentially being listed on, a, on an American stock exchange um, and dealt with by the whims of hedge fund managers and private equity, well, not private equity, but uh, you know, uh, pension funds and things of this nature, doesn't make us feel particularly comfortable. Well, it'd be interesting to see if those same Liverpool fans feel comfortable about this story, Kieran. And I suspect that we probably need to hold most of this over until Thursday because it's a massive story that's emerged Today, it's dominated the airwaves. It's dominated the thoughts of football fans all over social media because Liverpool and Manchester United have uh, released a blueprint, according to the Daily Telegraph, for a change to football, in particular a change to uh, the Premier League. And they've said that if the EFL agree to this change, they can get £250 million. Um, It seems to me, uh, being of a cynical background, that this looks like a terrible opportunities move using COVID to sneaking change that a lot of people won't want. But perhaps you could elaborate a little bit on what this blueprint says. Um, Yes. So this appears to have been initiated by Liverpool and uh, Manchester United. Now, we've just said that that Liverpool are potentially going on uh, some form of stock exchange. Manchester United are also on a stock exchange, i.e., what these clubs are doing is best for the stock markets. It's mm. not good for football. Um, I don't even think it's good for the for the regular fans at Old Trafford or Anfield either. Um, the proposals would involve the Premier League being cut to 18 clubs. Uh, the playoffs are being now between the club that finishes 15th in, or oh, sorry, 16th, 16th in yeah. the Premier 16th in the Premier League, and three clubs from the, the top of the Championship. Uh, the abolition of the Community Shield, the abolition, effectively, of the Carabao Cup, as far as Premier League clubs are concerned. You know, if, if the EFL want to run it, they, you know, they, they, they don't really care. Um, there, there were some other weird things that Premier League clubs can lend up to four players to another club. Mm. This is this is B teams through the back door, yeah. in my view. Yeah. Um, and the, the EFL... Um, 
to, to still be sort of three divisions of 24. So we end up with a professional game of 90 clubs mm. instead of 92. Now, I can't remember the last time we didn't have 92, apart from when clubs went bust. Mm. So um, here we have uh, American owners who have been in the game for about seven or eight years at Liverpool, American owners who have been in the game uh, you know, 15 years in the shape of Manchester United, wanting to destroy the history and the heritage mm. of English football to make it more like the NFL. Because some of the other things that they're proposing is that the season will start later and the reason for this is it will allow clubs to pay more exhibition games yeah. overseas. That's not what you became a Crystal Palace fan for. Yeah. That's not what I fell in love with the game for. And, and if I talk to, to my mates, uh, certainly, who, who I share an office with at Liverpool, well, you know, they're not bothered about you know if United or Liverpool playing into Milan in Pennsylvania. They want to see their club play at Anfield. This is also, of course... Um, a gateway towards an expanded Champions League mm. to start in 2024, which can only be achieved if you've cut back on domestic matches. Now, Kevin, have we ever discussed this before? Have you heard any of this nonsense before? Mm. Yes. Yes. And it's been on the show. Yes. You know, you know, we, we, we've been saying this for six to eight months and, and everybody just goes, you know, and this isn't a case of a told you show no, because no. I hate saying this this stuff, but... We 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 know people in football. We've been tipped off about this type of stuff, um, and, and yeah, we try to get it across to the listeners. It is bad news for football. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry it took me so long to say yes, then, Akira. And I was genuinely concentrating on what you have to say, and I panic a little bit when you ask me direct questions. Um, well, also, what's interesting this afternoon, and again, I I think as it is a questions pod, I, I want to discuss this properly on on Thursday, and I suspect that most of Thursday will be about this. But there are two things that particularly of note today. The fact is that um, basically they're saying the, the league should be, they, they're talking about the league should be controlled by the nine clubs that have been in the Premier League, the longest. They want to scrap one club, one vote. They want to scrap the idea of um, a majority, a straight majority of 14, which it is now, it'd be less than 18. But also uh, we're recording this on Sunday evening to go out uh, very early Monday morning. And the Premier League have just issued a statement uh, which then it, it's not a happy statement and it's not a placatory statement. And in particular, they've singled out Rick Parry and they said they're very, very disappointed that Rick Parry has already said that he agrees with this in principle and looks forward to the money. So that's interesting already that that's that, you know, that Rick Parry was so quick to say this, this sounds like a good idea because clearly he's seen that you can have 250 million pounds. And basically what the Premier League is saying is that Liverpool and Man United have no right to negotiate on the, the on the Premier League's behalf. And the Premier League said this this is something that will take years of consultation. So it's it's a very, very divisive story. And as I say, I think it's one we probably need to leave properly until Thursday, if that's all right, Kieran. But the, the Premier League statement yeah. the, the Premier League statement this afternoon is very interesting because it's very rare, as we know, for the Premier League to A react so quickly and B react uh, in a way that's not... I'm trying to find what's the opposite of sitting on the fence. So they're sitting in a garden on one side and another basin, which is very unusual for the Premier League to issue such a strongly worded statement, isn't it? Yeah, and we, we've seen a similar statement come from the DCMS. Um, perhaps we shouldn't be so surprised to hear the comments from former, Leifa, former Liverpool chief executive, Rick Parry. Yes, of course, yes. Um, let's get on to our questions. We have some very good questions this week, and I promise you, listeners, that we will talk about this on Thursday. And, and I, I think as it is such a unique situation, if you want to ask us questions in particular about the Liverpool Man United plan, we will be happy to answer those on Thursday as well, rather than waiting until next week. Our first question comes from Joseph Thompson. And it's a question that turns out to be of interest to Palace fans because Joseph says, Kieran, are you able to isolate the financial figures gained by a star player from a specific country? For example, to what extent was Jisung Park a financially motivated move to gain access to South Korean markets for Man United? And are Spurs now dominant in that South Korean market because of Sun Hong Min? Um, and it's interesting for me because there are always rumours that when Palace signed Fan Ji-hee and Sun Ji-hai, it was as part of a commercial deal with Chinese TV and nothing to do with their abilities as footballers? Um, it, it's something which you're never able to prove. Oh, okay. Certainly, if you, if you take a look at uh, Manchester United's accounts for the year after they signed uh, Ji Sung Park 
Um, there, there wasn't a significant bump in revenue, but then if you think about it, Manchester United sell out every match regardless. Um, so they, they can't sell any more tickets. Um, they, they, they were regularly winning the champion, sorry, regularly winning the, the Premier League. So therefore they can't get any more TV or prize money. If we take a look at what's happened with Spurs, um, you know, Son is, is, is just a very good footballer in my view. And, and so we've got one of the bargains of the decade. Uh, but they certainly, I mean, whenever I've been to see, uh, my side play at Spurs, certainly there have been a large number of uh, Korean fans there, and, and they all buy, buy the shirts from the merchandise. And of course, there's also a um, uh, uh, Korean TV channels. Yeah, they're very keen because he he is their he is their pinup boy. He's a fantastic footballer. So th- yeah, th- there certainly are benefits from the club's point of view in being able to sign um, the the commercial deals now in in Southeast Asia on on the back of that because it makes it easier to do so because what you can do is you can say well if you become our Korean camera partner or our Korean airline partner mm. um Jisun Park or you know or Son or whoever it's going to be um will be the person who will be your sort of your brand ambassador and will be able to charge you a bit extra should that dictate things on the field. I think that's a conspiracy theory yeah. um, at times. It, it might impact upon recruitment, but I don't think it necessarily, I don't think it would ever impact upon the manager's ability to pick the team. And I suppose as well, it's it's better for the individual player. I mean, if the player like Son is going to Man United or Spurs, that sort of increases his ownership, his sort of wage and owning capacity, doesn't it? And, and sponsorships, et cetera, rather than Man United, I guess. Yes, I mean certainly from from an intellectual property point of view, yeah, yeah. When when a when a shirt is sold with your name on the back from from the individual club, you you get a proportion of that. So clearly, the bigger the club, the, the more beneficial for the individual. Um, and certainly, the clubs that we're talking about are are global clubs in terms of their appeal. It's just that that global appeal is now being focused perhaps a little bit more in certain countries than others. You know the problem when we signed Fancy He and Sunji Hai, who were Palace fans loved them because they were two of the most reckless players I've ever seen in my life. They really were, and and were always they were always getting into trouble with referees because apparently in China, one small subversion that people were allowed was to have a go at referees. But my dad used to be genuinely worried when we signed them that when because Palace games were going out live in China, my dad was genuinely worried that if we scored and the whole of China jumped up and down, there would be a massive tidal wave. Um, <laughs> Now, our next question, Kieran, comes from Rob Winters. Um, Is there a reason, says Rob, that these days we are far more aware of most transfers and takeover deals before they are confirmed? For example, the Newcastle takeover bid potential was played out in public, whereas the Man City takeover was pretty much under the radar until it was announced when it was done. Is this to do with clubs and agents leaking information to build interest, or is it just a change in the, the way the process is going? Uh, my view is that in the main, um, people would much rather deals be done behind closed doors without anybody knowing. Um, a bit similar to the uh, pay-per-view deal that uh, yeah. Yeah, we, we've just been exposed to. Um, when deals are being played out in the public, it's normally because one side or other has a vested interest in that information being passed on to, to journalists or being passed on to, to bloggers or being passed on to you know, people that do podcasts or whatever uh, in terms of driving the price up, trying to put the pressure on the other party to either buy or sell or things of this nature. We're also operating in a 24-7 world environment where Everybody's got a channel to fill. Um, you, you've got to get that information out and, and get your side of the the argument across first as well. So, in terms of the the Liverpool deal, sorry, in terms of the Newcastle deal, um, I, I think some of the the exposure which was coming and effectively being driven by Amanda Staveley and the PIF team was to try to to shame. Mike Ashley into selling the club because they were aware of his unpopularity with the fan base. Mm. So, you know, information isn't given away uh, for for no reason whatsoever. There's, There's always an ulterior motive. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. 
In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, Gabriella Lowe has asked our next question, and it's regarding the potential All-Ireland League in Ireland. Uh, from a fan's perspective, from, I'll say that again because I'm the blisters on my feet are affecting my tongue for some reason, Kim. I don't know why that would be. And I've managed to, to pronounce Ireland in the same way as Ireland, um, which won't please my family. From a fan's perspective, says Gabriella, uh, I would absolutely love an All-Ireland League. Uh, I think it'd be great for Irish football. But Gabriella wonders if it's a financially stable idea. Uh, I believe, says Gabriella, that Irish clubs make minimal money. Uh, I may be wrong, says Gabriella, but I suspect she's not. And we've added expenses like travel. Would clubs make enough to make this sustainable? Right. Well, well first of all, Gabriella is, is absolutely correct. The, um, the Airtricity League, which is the Republic of Ireland League, had a total revenue of 15 million euros between the 10 clubs. Now, that's less than Meza Ozil earns in a year. Yeah, I just worked that out um, myself. Yeah, that's not a lot, is it? That's not a lot. So, um, and also, I looked at some of UEFA's statistics, and the Premier League by itself. This is to give you know we we talk about the Premier League being a success. This this is just how significant a success it is. The Premier League by itself generates more revenue than all fifty of the non-Big Five countries in UEFA. Wow! So, so exclude France, Italy, Spain, and Germany. You put all the rest together, Premier League's bigger than them in terms of revenue. So clearly, you know, I, I think we've got to say, hey, you know, hats off to the Premier League. It is a, it is a very successful organisation. Where does this leave clubs in both the, the Republic of Ireland and the Northern Ireland League? Um, they are they are relatively small. Um, the the TV money is is as close to zero as you can possibly get yeah. because the, the the RTE the Irish uh, Republic of Ireland broadcaster not willing really to pay much money for it it's just not enough excitement um I, I think there is a potential here from having an, an Ireland of Ireland league um and and the reason for this is that it would potentially uh create interest in the fan base and rivalries and things of that nature because you will have clubs from both uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic wanting uh, and certainly the fans to to want to be top of that league mm. to be the best team in the whole island itself um as far as the extra costs are concerned, you know, we both have Irish families. We know how big uh, the country is. I, I don't think issues such as transport would be too much of an issue. So if, if you take a look at the three uh, the three main sources of revenue for a football club, in terms of match day, I think that would go up. I think uh, what you would find is that um, some of the clubs, especially the you know, there'd be good away followings going from one place um, of Ireland to another, uh, in terms of commercial, I think the the extra interest would generate a higher commercial and sponsorship revenue. And in terms of TV, I think the only complication here would, of course, be that you know the, the BBC is responsible for television in Northern Ireland, and RTE uh, is responsible for um, TV in the Republic. But you know, one of those two bodies, or you could have somebody such as Sky, who 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 broadcasts sort of universally um I, I think they would find that quite attractive so uh, it's it's i think it's a very interesting idea by gabriella um and from a financial point of view there could certainly be benefits yeah, the, the trouble is kieran from a financial point of view it would benefit because uh, irish football is basically competing with the premier league i mean we you, you you only have to be in dublin on a saturday morning to see how many flights are taking off to take irish fans to to see English football and you only have to be in a, a pub in Ireland to see how popular Premier League football is there. So it does make economic sense. But unfortunately, I, my view is un, unhappily that there is still a lot of people on in one part of the island particularly who for historical reasons won't want to see an All-Ireland League. And there will be people who say that for security reasons, 
it's not it's not going to happen basically because they simply won't want fans from each side traveling across the border will they I, I, I can understand that argument, um, and and if that is the case, it, it's it, it's a shame yeah. because I think you know from a rugby perspective, um, that you know the, the the clubs both north and south have, have managed to come together, um, and and it would be a challenge because as, as we know, football is is probably more tribal um, with, with regards to issues of of a sectarian nature, mm. shall we say, than 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 a, a sport such as rugby, but it it, but it could be. This is a way of addressing those. That'd be lovely. But, please, God. Although, although Rangers and Celtic would suggest that's not the case. Yes. Uh, now, our next question comes from Sami Zeglam. Sami, I apologise if I've pronounced your name incorrectly, although I don't really because you're a Brighton fan. Um, uh, I don't care how you pronounce it, Sammy. Uh Sami says, uh, and I'll do this in a grown-up fashion because I'm a grown-up broadcaster. Sami says, I'm a Brighton season ticket holder, but I live and work in Lewisham. Kieran, I had no idea there was a hummus workshop in Lewisham. But uh, Sammy says, in Lewisham, I rarely see kids wearing Millwall kits, but I see loads of kids in Brighton wearing Brighton kits. Now, I would have thought that might be more to do with the fact that Brighton are a Premier League team. But I know, but Sammy's theory that this is because Brighton wear Nike, but Millwall wear Macron, which is arguably not considered as cool. Is there a logic to that argument, Kieran? Do you think Millwall would sell more shirts to young people if they were from a, a so-called cooler supplier? I, I'm not convinced about this because I've seen clubs such as Southend before who have been had their kits manufactured by Nike and, and they weren't necessarily big sellers. I, I think the issue um, in terms of, of Brighton versus London is that, that Brighton is a one-club city and London, mm. um, as you know yourself, uh, you, you've got so many clubs competing for the affection of fans and therefore – there actually might be quite a few kids in Millwall shirts, but because you are also more likely to see other kids in Arsenal, Spurs, Chelsea, Fulham, you know, QPR, Palace, you know, whoever it's going to be, that they sort of become lost in the mix. Um, so I, I don't have an issue with Macron. In fact, I, I took a look at the the the, uh, the, the Millwall shirt uh, this morning, and remember, I'm a, I am a an Elephant and Castle lad myself. I and for me, you know, any any club that is sponsored by Husky Chocolate, uh, you know, is is fine by me. So I thought it was quite a cool shirt. Yeah, it wouldn't, that wouldn't have happened in the old days, Kieran. The old Millwall wouldn't have been sponsored by Husky Chocolate, would it? Uh, <laughs> no. And I, and My uncle Terry wouldn't be happy with that. Well, Terry's all gold. He would have been. He would have been <laughs> oh. I'm also on a bound to say, as a Palace fan, back in the 70s and 80s, you very rarely saw anybody wear a Millwall shirt because they didn't like to announce themselves before they jumped to your coach, basically. <laughs> Now, Kieran, this is a little bit awkward, isn't it? Because we've done a lot of childish laughing on recent pods about football clubs announcing they have a below-the-waist grooming partner. But now that's exactly what we've got. Because support for this episode of The Price of Football comes from Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped has just launched in the UK and they offer precision-engineered tools for your precision-engineered tool. Kieran, we both got sent a lovely box full of stuff to try it. I'm, I'm not doing it, Kieran. I'll, I'll tell you why. Mrs. Day won't let me because she said the only time I did try it, I looked like Ross Kemp down there, which is no good. But you've, you've gone deep end, haven't you? I, I have indeed. Uh, I, I've tried this once or twice before when I was younger, but this is a whole new ball game, Kevin. A whole new ball game. Um, this, this, this product is, it, it's lightweight. It's, it's ergonomic. Uh, it, it's one hand required only. You know, things, 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 lots of positives. And this is version 3.0, uh, in the UK. It, it's got a cutting edge ceramic blade. Uh, you can go uh, short. You can go long as much as you wish. It's got a nice LED light. So you know when the battery is running out and all of these things. Um, and it's, it's now got a 7,000 RPM. Quiet stroke technology. I only wish I had quiet stroke technology when I was a teenager. So all is good about this. I've got to say I'm, I'm now a convert. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think yeah, people should try this firsthand for yourself. So yeah, make your testies your besties. Well, Kieran, you've done a, a fair old selling job there, but I'm afraid our listeners will still have to take the rough with this move. Um, 
you can, <laughs> if you feel so inclined, if you want your pubic area to look like a freshly mown football pitch, you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code price of football, all one word, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code price of football. Your balls will thank you. Okay, we need a we need a grown up question after that, and it, it comes from Robert Curtis. Robert, thank you for your grown up question. Uh, although I suspect you didn't know which where it was going to go in the order of the podcast. Um, and actually, this is one of those questions that I really like because, on the face of it, this is a question we probably should have been dealing with right from the, from podcast one. And it's because I admit I read it and went, oh, I don't know. And it's a very simple question, but it's what is the difference, says Robert between administration and receivership. Wigan, as the latest example, went into administration and received an automatic 12-point deduction. But my team, says Robert Blackpool, went into receivership and the EFL did not deduct points. Right. And the difference is, is that administration is where normally the club's directors will appoint administrators to protect the club from its creditors. And this can often result in, in what's referred to as a pre-pack sale. So you put the club into administration and then you buy it back immediately from the administrators. Now, football was actually quite guilty of this mm. in, in the mid-2000s. Mm. And, and to be fair to the EFL, um, this is why um, they introduced penalties to stop clubs from uh, overspending, stiffing their creditors, uh, s- effectively selling the club for a pound back to themselves and starting off all over again. Receivership is where the lender appoints somebody to run the company. So instead of being protected from the creditors, you are now um, being controlled by somebody appointed by the creditors. Um, normally in receivership, you know, the, the, you'll need a mortgage in order to do that or a charge, and, and, the, and then the company would be liquidated. Um, so so it's, uh, it's far less popular. Certainly when I was involved in the world of insolvency, which was uh, in in the in the late eighties, receivership was the way that uh, that uh, struggling companies were dealt with. Administration was actually brought out as a as a faster, cheaper alternative, and that's why it's become more popular. Um, in re- in respect of Blackpool, um, I, I went into the small print. Um, they were potentially on a twelve point penalty charge. Um, this. I think I think the EFL under Sean Harvey, who was the previous chief executive, mm. I think the best way I can describe it as was a light touch organisation, um, and they described the receivership and I quote not material to the club's ability to fulfil its obligations as a member of the EFL, and therefore we're not going to uh, apply the penalty. And, and to be frank with you, um, because. Owen Oyston, the convicted rapist who used to own Blackpool, because he wasn't involved in appointing the receiver, he couldn't therefore be seen to be trying to manipulate um, the activities of the company. Okay, I see. Um, And on a similar note, Brett Peckham, great name, Brett, Brett Peckham, says when a club goes into administration, uh, and again, I'm sorry, Wigan fans, but you are the latest example, which is why people keep using you as an example. Um, when a club goes into administration, how do they pick which players to sell? Because you, know, you clearly want to sell good players to make money, but presumably you don't want to sell your best players because then that, that will dilute the selling price of the club. Um, but, but what will happen is that the first thing you do in administration is that you, you have a chat with the normally the chief executive, the chief scout, the the manager, and so on, and, and you'll prepare a cash flow statement. You say, well, this is how much it's going to cost us per week or per month to run this football club. Um, if if you've been appointed by the directors, the chances are you might be struggling to find a bank to give you an overdraft. So you look at this. This is how much money we need to generate in order to pay the wages, in order to fulfil the fixtures. And then you work out which players can generate that amount of money faster, as fast as possible. I I appreciate fully what what Brett is inferring, that if you take a look at what happened with Wigan, they sold Jensen Weir, they sold Joe Gelhart, they sold Alfie Devine, um, and, and they got... They they got fast fire sale prices for those yeah. players, if if truth be told. But it did give the club 
the cash to fulfil its fixtures and also be sold as a going concern. The responsibility of the administrator is to sell the assets of the club. Um, and they, they, they are aware that by selling assets on an individual basis, it, of course, reduces the value of the business as a whole, but they will be focusing upon those short-term cash needs initially. And I, I suspect you might have experienced similar issues at Palace um, you know, when, when you were uh, involved with the administration there, when, when you were one of the trustees of the, the, the Palace Foundation. Uh, absolutely. When... Um... I wasn't back then. I was a trustee of something else. But, yeah, I understand your point. But are there administrators that specialise in, in football care? Or does an administrator come in and just look at the book value of a player and go, right, we need this amount of money. These three players will get us this amount of money. Well, um, yeah. If, if we take a look at what has been happening in football, Begbie's trainer have become the go-to uh, people in respect of football administrations because they've got experience, so therefore they've got contact books and things of this nature. So if if you were the directors of a club, you say, well, we, we think we need to put the club into administration. To whom should we go? You, you say, well, you know, Wigan, this club, that club, they've all been dealt with by Begbies or all dealt with by another firm of administrators. Therefore, they would appear to be the, the go-to guys. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're better or worse. It, it's a bit like me and all the football finance interviews, um, because I've done a couple before, you then go, or you go into somebody's Rolodex or you go into somebody's contacts book and, and you end up, you know, I, I was on Sky, you know, 10 minutes before th- this, uh, th- this, this show was recorded and I've got another radio show as soon as we finish. It's not because I'm better or worse. It's simply because you're known as, the, as a contact and, and it sort of becomes a, a bit of a snowball effect. Yes, also because Swiss Ramble doesn't give his number away to anybody who asks, isn't it? That's part of the problem. I, I just your poor your fourteen month old granddaughter would have got her first taste of. She was bouncing up and down on Granddad's knee, happily in Yorkshire pudding and gravy. And Granddad went, "Oh, okay, I've got a radio interview. Sorry, darling." Um, <laughs> Toby Gray asks a very simple question. Toby says, "Was last season the best ever to be promoted to the Premier League from a financial point of view, due to the obvious reduction in EFL revenue this season?" Uh, yeah, it's a great, great uh, question from Toby. I, I think it probably was because if you take uh, if you take Leeds United, thirty eight percent of their revenue in uh, in the Championship was coming through ticket sales, and they they were selling more tickets than any other club in the Championship, and in fact they were making more money from ticket sales than half the clubs in the in the Premier League itself. So if if that was taken away at the knees as as we've seen this season with covid, um they they would have uh, had a very significant financial hit. So from a financial perspective it was really good um and also they they were the best team in in the championship last season. Nobody I don't can dispute that no matter how bitter they are against Leeds. Um so yes it it was very much the the best t- best time to go up. I, I there is a frustration because the benefits of being in the Premier League in terms of this season, they might have been able to charge a bit more for tickets. And certainly if, if you speak to the, the guys that are selling hospitality packages, you know, the plans that they had for when Manchester United and Liverpool and Chelsea and so on came to Elland Road, you know, they, they could have effectively named their price. So they, they'll be frustrated by that, but the hundred million pounds of TV money has has, a, has really acted as as a very good buffer for some of the financial challenges that are affecting all clubs um, in in all levels of football this season. It will be really frustrating. I mean, there's no point denying that West Brom and Fulham will probably struggle this season. It would be awfully frustrating for the fans and the club if the only season they had in the Premier League for some time was this COVID season, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, you know because. Football is fans, yeah. um, and uh, you know I think the "Let Fans In" campaign has been successful, and, and we should carry on pressurising the powers that be, because as, as we've you know, as we've proven in in today's conversation, you can watch football in a cinema, yeah. you can watch football in a hospitality lounge. So why can't you watch it at a football stadium? Yeah, we're going to talk about the Let Fans In campaign in more detail on Thursday, hopefully. And hopefully we'll we'll get to talk to somebody from that campaign. Uh, it's been a while since we've been to Spain, Kieran, which is a shame. But Nick Malvetzi uh, says, It seems for as long as I can remember that Valencia has been in all sorts of financial trouble. Despite back in the day selling players like David Silva, Juan Mata and David Villa, and being semi-regulars in the Champions League, it always seems that they are scraping to get by 
while having a constant fire sale of their top players. Is that just because of poor ownership? Um, no, um, blame it on the bankers. Um, th- this this goes back to the uh, financial crisis of just over a decade ago. And at the time, Valencia were in the process of building uh, what's referred to as the new Mestala, apologies to my pronunciation, um, a, a brand new stadium, which they, they started in around about 2009, and which is presently unfinished due to issues to do with construction and issues to do with the uh, global economy um, that was uh, you know, the, the fault of, and I'm quite happy to say this, of the accountants, the ratings agencies and the bankers. Um, and as a result of that, Valencia have debts of around about a quarter of a billion. Well, wow. And they've got the worst of both worlds. They've got the debt, but they've got not got the stadium to generate the revenue because that stadium is unfinished. Oh. As a consequence, they've been in a in a constant fire sale scenario ever since. Um, and, and it's 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 a tragedy uh, for a club that has got such great history and heritage and has produced absolutely amazing players. David Silva, uh, you know, one of my my favourite players of, of all time as far as the, the Premier League is concerned. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about your Spanish pronunciation, Kieran, considering I just called him David Villa. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're nearly, we've got uh, three more questions left and they're all good questions. Uh, our next question, again, takes us to the continent, but via another continent. Alex Blanton. Hello, Alex. Alex Blanton says, I'm a student from America and listening to your podcast has inspired me to major in accounting and hopefully go work for a club when I graduate. I I don't know whether to apologise for that or not, Alex. Uh, and if, if Kieran is that inspiring, Alex is probably having a downstairs trim as we speak. Um, but Alex says that he follows um, all the America. This might be a, a female, Alex, in which case I apologise profusely. But Alex says uh, he follows all the Americans that play in Europe. And recently, Weston McKenney moved from Schalke to Juventus as part of what was described as a survival plan. And basically, Alex wants to know, what's, what's happened to Schalke, one of the biggest clubs in Germany? What's happened to Schalke to make them a team that needs a survival plan? Um, to, to a certain extent, uh, they're guilty of overextending themselves. Um, you know, in, in, you know, we were talking about Leeds a little bit while ago. Um, I think the same can be said of Schalke. In order to be competitive with Bayern Munich, um, you have to spend a lot of money and you've got to sign the right players. Now, with Schalke, unfortunately, they made some bad decisions in, in terms of recruitment. That left them with a wage bill which was difficult to sustain. That starts to lead to a fire sale. Um, and I think the, the corollary with Leeds is that you end up uh, you know, struggling on the park as a result. And it takes a long time to turn around that particular type of problem. Does there come a time, Kieran, when a team like Schalke, for example, or Dortmund, has to do what Arsenal more or less admitted that they did and say, look, we can't compete with Bayern Munich, let's try and finish fourth. And that would be considered a success and will stay financially viable because it seems to me that even attempting to compete with Bayern, you're on a hiding to nothing, aren't you? Uh, yeah, very much so. Um, and, and look what happened to Arsenal when when the fans got fed up yeah. of finishing fourth. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's a classic case of, of be careful what you wish for. And Arsenal, certainly from a financial point of view, um, have become detached from um, the, the rest of the, the, their peer group. And, and, and I would say financially their peer group have been Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea um, and Liverpool. You know, I wouldn't have even included Spurs there, but but Spurs now have the infrastructure in a non-COVID world to... Uh, to leap over Arsenal in, in terms of the wages that they can afford to pay. Uh, a couple of years outside of the Champions League, i.e. not finishing fourth, can be hugely damaging for a club's long-term finances. See, that's the beauty of this pod. You start off talking about Schalke and you finish up by annoying Arsenal fans. Um, our penultimate question comes from Andy Davis. Now, Andy says that his father-in-law lives in northeast Derbyshire, a lovely part of the world, and he wants to know if his council tax goes towards the cost of Chesterfield Football Club now. And will he get a reduction if Chesterfield do well and sell a player for £10 million? Um, 
Well, I think the the good news is that the relationship between the council and the new owners, for people not familiar, Chesterfield is is now sort of a community, a charity owned club, which which is fantastic. That ties into all all sort of our principles. Mm. Um, the, the council have have given money, um, not forever. You know, it's it's on a, it's on more of a uh, of a loan basis um, to help the setup of this organisation because they're aware of the importance of a football club to a local community uh, in terms of both its physical and, and mental well-being. Um, if, if Chesterfield do develop a, a successful player and sell them at a profit, um, I don't think it's a direct link uh, in terms of how the council will benefit, but I think that they will benefit from the fact that uh, people in the, in the town, I think, will be quite proud under those circumstances, and, and that will that will engender a more positive vibe uh, in in that uh, in that town itself. And, and again, as an away fan, I've had some great days out in Chesterfield, mm. so yeah, it'd be one of those clubs you'd be wanting to do well. Yeah. God knows any club anywhere near the Northwest needs a positive vibe at the moment. Uh, our final question, Kieran, comes from Tom Sauvage. Um, I've gone for the coolest possible pronunciation of that name. Uh, if it's actually pronounced Sauvage, uh, adding sausage, I've, I beg your pardon, but I imagine it's Tom Sauvage. And I imagine somebody called Tom Sauvage can only be 100% cool. I imagine Tom Sauvage in a white-fitted T-shirt. I don't know why. Um, it's a great name, isn't it? Tom Sauvage. Uh, Tom wonders how the finances of a team like Hashtag United compare, not just to non-league teams around them, but in general because of their significant online fan base. Um, I think what you'll find with, with clubs such as Hashtag United is that initially their finances will give them a wee bit of a competitive advantage um, to, to those around them and also to, to clubs in perhaps a division or two above. The problem with projects of this nature, and, and we've seen it with other clubs who, who have tried to be sort of more broad fan owned, is that there's a very high, what we refer to as a churn rate, is that people put their money in initially. Um, they like the idea of being involved in the decision-making process and then actually that you find that sort of making decisions by by app or by WhatsApp or or things of that nature quickly gets very boring. It, it's, a, uh, it, it's a bit like running a fantasy football team where after seven or eight games, you know you're going to finish somewhere between eighth and twelfth and you lose all interest. Mm. And it's, it's continuing to maintain that interest that I think will be the challenge for Hashtag United uh, in terms of the way that they operate. But in broad principle, it's 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 a it's a challenging idea. It's a novel idea, um, and and you wish people well. Um, how long it can survive? Because there is a large dropout rate. Uh, that that will be the, the real issue. And the problem is, of course, that the media get bored quite quickly. Because initially, you know, hashtag United have been live on on the BBC in an FA Cup game behind the red button. You know, Sky are all over it. They have, they send cameras down, and there's and then. Two months later, they've lost interest completely and moved on to the next thing, haven't they? And, and once you drop out of that media interest, it is, as you say, very difficult to sustain what is a good idea. Yeah, and also it doesn't have a necessarily a natural fan base. Mm. You know, for the, again, for the first two or three games, you might be willing to travel 70 or 80 miles to see a home game. And if they don't do particularly well and you don't sort of strike up a relationship with other fans there then you might say, well, OK, uh, let, let's just pretend this never happened. Yeah, and it's harder to create a heritage as well, isn't it? I mean, he, he, uh, other teams are trying it. tried it, but at least Ebsfleet were an existing an existing team, so it's hard to sort of create a history. But it's, I still think it's a good idea, and I hope it's, it succeeds. Um, as always, I will leave you by saying, if you have a question for us, uh, it's questions at priceoffootball.com. And as I said earlier, I think our Thursday pod will be dominated by the so-called new blueprint from Man United and Liverpool. So any questions you have about that, please uh, ask us for then. Um, and I shall hand you over to Kieran to say goodbye. Well, folks, thanks again for your feedback. Thanks for the reviews um, on the Apple podcast and the other the other apps that you use. Um, it, all, all we can say is, is it does make a difference uh, in terms of uh, where we stand uh, in terms of the league tables. We, we don't make money. I've, I've not got a penny from this. Yeah, we're, we're not making money from the podcast. We're not trying to relieve you of, a, of, of cash. Uh, but also, it's nice to say something nice about people anyway. Uh, if you give a five-star review, um, then that works for us. And also, when we're trying to book guests for the show, uh, you know, if they look to see that we're doing reasonably well in, in the podcast charts, then it, it adds a bit of credibility to, to otherwise, you know, people turn around and say, Guy, 
to, to, to produce a guy, well, we've never heard of those two blokes um, and your number 174 in the charts. So so for that reason, if you could, if you could sit, hit the subscribe button as well, you know, you'll, you'll get this twice a week. Um, you know, we, we try to make it as uh, a, a combination of information, entertainment and uh, analysis uh, uh, for you folks. And, and also just keep hammering us with the questions. It keeps us on our toes. And apart from that, stay safe, look after yourselves, look after your loved ones. Yes. And in the meantime, we will sit back and wait for the barrage of tweets about genital topery. I'm for the